Please be seated. And as you are this evening, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, I invite you to turn with me, first of all, to the third chapter of Matthew's Gospel. That's Matthew in chapter 3. We'll read just a few verses from this portion of Matthew's Gospel, and then we'll turn to our principal text that's taken from Matthew chapter 25. It's Matthew chapter 3, and we'll commence our reading there, the first verse. And beloved, this is the inerrant, the infallible word of the living God. In a world filled with words, so many of them empty, the Lord has given us this, upon which we may stand. Matthew chapter 3, starting here at the first verse. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruit, meat for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, we we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Now also the axe is laid under the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his weed into the garner. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And then turn with me, if you would, just a few pages over to Matthew chapter 25 or just flip over the insert you received. Matthew chapter 25, and again, we'll commence our reading there at the first verse. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, Sorry, and five of them were wise, and five were foolish. Uh, They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, there was a cry made. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. 
the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, but but go ye rather to them that sell and, and buy for yourselves. While they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch, therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour, wherein the Son of Man cometh. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. And may he richly bless us under it this evening. Well, friend, as we take up this portion of God's word once again, as we come to Matthew's gospel in the 25th chapter, I'll just remind you uh, where we are. Uh, this is really the twilight of Christ's public ministry. This is Tuesday of the week in which he will be crucified. And so this is numbered among his final discourses, the last of his public preaching before the close of his public ministry. And friend, we've seen already that this discourse is a solemn one. His sermon here is dealing with the most weighty of themes. And beloved, you you recognize even from what we've read, but if you read even beforehand, that the Lord has now been insisting time and again on this theme with his disciples. This theme of preparation for the end. And that comes, if you remember, after the disciples had asked, what will be the sign of Christ's coming? Well, this is his response. After giving them signs, he urges them again and again to be watchful. But, friend, as he illustrates the need for that watchfulness in this parable, and I trust we've seen that thus far, you also notice that he illustrates something else in this parable and also the two preceding. Not only is he urging them for good reason to to be watchful and to prepare for that time, but But friend, you'll notice he also describes for us what that event will be. For many, these parables illustrate it will be a surprising event. You can't get away from that. And that's perhaps one of the most most haunting aspects of this portion of Matthew's Gospel. Christ says time and again, there will be many who will be surprised on that day. Well, friend, as we come to our text this evening, I'd remind you that Christ launches into this parable. He, he, as it were, orients his hearers, both in the first century and ourselves, to something that's quite familiar. He takes us to the celebration of a wedding. This illustration, this parable is drawn from that that preparatory element of, of the Jewish wedding. And you remember just very briefly what that entailed. It it involved there being ten virgins who would attend the bride in the bride's house. Uh, These were virgins, and and they were virgins. That is, they they were known to be pure. And it was especially virgins that were to attend the bride because this really underscored the holiness of the ordinance of marriage. So these were pure individuals, socially respectable individuals. And they're with the bride. But then you'll notice that Christ here, he distinguishes them. He says five of those were wise, while the other five were foolish. Once again, the Savior distinguishes the seemingly 
indistinguishable. They all look the same. Externally, they all sound, seem to be the same. But Christ says, here they're not. Five are foolish. Five are wise. Now, friend, as we take up our text this evening, which is verses 3 to 5, we now look more at the wise virgins here, who they represent, what their character is like. We're told here that, first of all, we're to distinguish them in their actions from the foolish. The foolish, they took their lamps and no oil with them. They, in other words, intended to burn brightly, but they would only burn briefly. They would burn conspicuously, but only for a moment. Not so the wise. The wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. And all that communicates to us, friend, is that these ones intended to burn brightly and for long. They were duly prepared. And then we're told this, that after, after these ten go out to meet the bridegroom, as they wait to see the bridegroom come with, with his own entourage, we're told that as the bridegroom tarried, all of them, the wise and the foolish, they all slumbered and slept. Now, friend, uh, there are commentators in the past who would have said, some of them at least, who would have argued that this is something that, that is to be reproved in both, that neither of them should have slumbered or slept. But I want you to notice that Christ doesn't reprove either of them for slumbering or sleeping. In fact, what we find here is that the wise, when they slept, they manifested that kind of watchfulness that Christ urges upon us in verse 13. We'll see more how we're supposed to see the slumbering and the sleeping later. But friend, the point that we see in these verses is that the wise manifested their wisdom because they were duly prepared. Now what does all of this mean for us? What is it that Christ is communicating to us? Well friend, as we see from the very first verse, Christ intends to give us a picture, an illustration, a parable that tells us something about the kingdom of heaven on earth. The kingdom of heaven on earth being the church, the visible church. That is, the number of those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the community of Christians. That's what this parable is about, friend. It's about the church of God on earth. Today. And every day until, of course, the end. And we're told here that that church is filled with wise and foolish with true and the false. And in our text, and our focus this evening is on the true. What, what do they look like? What is it that really makes them genuine believers? This text teaches us that true Christians are those who are duly prepared. These are those who stand ready to meet Christ. And what I want us to do this evening is I want us to first of all look at their readiness. Their preparation. You see that again in verse 3. They took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Now again, if you were with us last evening, you'll remember that these are not the kinds of lamps that you and I would be accustomed to seeing. These are lamps that were poles, really, with an oil-dipped cloth on one end. And these vessels were necessary because, of course, the cloth couldn't burn long on its own. It required more and more oil. And what we're told in the text is that this is what distinguished the wise from the foolish. The wise were careful to make sure they had the vessel and the lamp and the oil. 
You see, the foolish, they had cloth, and the cloth on its own would burn brightly. But again, it would only burn for a moment. These ones were not so much concerned that they would burn at its brightest, but that they would burn as long as it was necessary. So they carry with them the oil and the vessel. Now, friend, we're told that both, in verse 1, we're told both the wise and the foolish go with their lamps, the wise, of course, with their vessels and their oil as well, and they went forth to meet the bridegroom. In other words, you see here a picture of all ten of them coming to Christ in some way, approaching the Lord in some way, and, and they come with some kind of preparation in the sense that, of course, the wise and the foolish both have lamps. But what really distinguished, friend, the true from the false was that the foolish were not duly prepared. They were not duly prepared. A friend, as we look at this text and we recognize that here Christ is speaking to us about true, that is, true Christians, those duly prepared, we have to ask the question, what, what do the scriptures teach about this kind of preparation? What does it mean, as it were, to have one's vessel and oil in that vessel as well as their lamp, seeing that that's what's required? A friend, if I can take you just back to a moment, a moment perhaps you're familiar with from the Gospels, where you hear John the Baptist, the great forerunner of Christ, preaching to the people, and, and he preaches, he insists on two primary themes. As he preaches, prepares the church then for the coming of Christ. He urges them time and again to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. They're urged to repent. And then on the other hand, you remember he says, Behold the Lamb of God. There's, first of all, repentance and faith. Repentance and faith belong to this biblical preparation. In fact, there is no real preparation without this. As, and just as it was when, with Christ's first calling, so it is with his second. Just as it is with Christ coming to his church at the end, so it is with you and for me, who may not see the second coming of Christ in our own generation. But like all of mankind, it's been appointed unto us once to die, and after this the judgment. The only true preparation is that which we've already read from Matthew's Gospel. It is of repentance and faith. Now, friend, if you were with us again last, last evening, you'll remember that, that here in the parable, the, the foolish virgins, they go out to meet Christ in a sense. They, they have a kind of faith. Well, now, friend, we, we recognize it was not a saving faith. It's our task this evening to see what true saving faith is. In other words, what true preparation to meet Christ looks like. The first thing I'd show you from the scriptures is that, that true faith begins with knowledge. True faith begins with knowledge. And this corrects so much of what you and I hear. You know, so many would talk about a Christianity, a spirituality that, that is devoid of doctrine. Uh, give me Christ, but not doctrine. Give me, give me something that I, that I can feel and experience, but don't, don't give me truth. Well, friend, that's quite the opposite of true faith. The, the scriptures don't know anything of that kind of Christianity. No, they know of a Christianity that requires knowledge. 
And knowledge derived from the scriptures. Scriptures, the scriptures are wise to make us, sorry, the scriptures make us wise unto salvation. As Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy. Friend, true faith begins with knowledge. But I want you to notice it also has a second element to it. It also requires assent. In other words, it's not just enough to to know the truth. And of course, what are we talking about here? We're, We're talking about the Son of God incarnate, walking among men, living a perfect and a sinless life, and and then at the end of his public ministry, dying that atoning death to to deliver his people out from under the curse of God, out from under the dominion of sin, and, and through his resurrection and ascension to be for them all that is necessary for their salvation. Friend, what you and I are to believe is that Jesus Christ did all of that. That all of that is a historical fact. We're also to believe, of course, as well, that as this is the self-same Christ who has ascended, this is the self-same Christ who's alive today. Friend, it's, it's not enough to have a historical Christ. It's not enough to have a Christ who who simply occupied the timeline some 2,000 years ago. It's necessary to believe in a living Christ. That is a Christ who has a beating heart today. Just as sure as you and I fill this auditorium. One must assent to the truth of the gospel as well. That's the second element of true faith. But the third element, and it's this third element that distinguishes the wise from the foolish, the true from the false Christian, the true faith from the false. Genuine faith necessarily leads the soul to entrust itself to the Christ that it sees in history, that it believes to be the living Christ. In other words, friend, what you have here is the soul casting itself As one of the older writers said, sink or swim upon Christ as he promises to save all who come to him by faith. Friend, that's the third and the final element that really distinguishes the wise from the foolish. We need to ask another question, I suppose. What does that mean, to cast oneself upon Christ? If I can put it to you negatively, just briefly. Friend, the first thing that that involves, of course, is renouncing sin. It really involves that. But, but this evening, as we'll be taking that up later in the week, tomorrow evening, I want us to hold that at bay and focus on another element. What's also necessary is that the soul renounce self-righteousness. Friend, as we look at this text, what you and I find are are images, of course. But in the, in, the, in the wise especially, you have an image of, of one who is not willing to entrust itself to its own measure of preparation. Not contented with a measure of piety, but, but really moving beyond it. Friend, what you have here is a picture of that idea that, that is given to us even in the epistles. Given to us in Philippians 3, for instance. Where Paul says, what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. And what is he talking about there? He's talking about all of the attainments that he had in the law. He's not talking about his worldly, material wealth. He's talking about even his his claims to righteousness according to the law. Note what he says about that. He says, I counted it lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all 
all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord. And he goes on to say he renounces all of his self-righteousness that he might be found only in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In other words, friend, what true faith requires of the soul is that it goes to Christ. And it doesn't repent simply of all of his sins. It goes to Christ and renounces any ounce of self-righteousness. To put it in other words, in the words of John Bunyan, it goes to Christ and acknowledges that that your best prayer only merited you on its own an eternity of hell. That's the harder piece. Friend, I I suppose many would say it's an easy thing to repent. Certainly it's not. It's impossible to the natural man. But, But if I can highlight just how difficult this is, the gospel door is so low that it requires men and women to renounce any standing on their own. That's a necessary part of faith. But more positively, friend, faith also requires the soul to conclude that Christ and Christ only is the refuge that is available and the only refuge they desire. In other words, it's that kind of cry that you find in Luke 6. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. They desire no other refuge, and they know there is no other refuge. That's the exercise of true faith. That's what it is to be duly prepared. And friend, I want you to notice that then this distinction between the true and the false, it's not a distinction of degrees. It's not that the wise had more of something than the foolish. You need to recognize here that, that friend, there's an essential distinction between them. They are utterly different in this regard. They might look the same. They might sound the same. They might all believe in the historicity of the gospel. They might all assent to its truthfulness in some measure. But friend, the difference between the wise and the foolish is that they have lodged their souls in Christ. Have been driven by the law from their self-righteousness. And have concluded, and happily so, that Christ alone is their sufficient Savior. That, friend, is what the readiness of this text points to. But our second and our final point this evening is is really a question of the characteristics. What, What does this look like? What are the effects? Now again, if you look at verse 3, you'll notice that the wise are described as those who took oil in their vessels with their lamps. And then, as I said to you before, we're told that as the bridegroom tarried, both the wise and the foolish slumbered. What's important for us to remember, though, friend, is that as the wise sleep, they sleep with their provisions. They sleep with their vessels and the oil. And why is that important? Well, friend, one of the, one of the reformers commenting on this text says that you and I are supposed to see this sleep as it denotes earthly occupations in which believers must be engaged so long as they dwell in the body. In other words, because the sleep is not rebuked by Christ, we're supposed to understand this as, as something that was necessary. This, this belongs to, to the needs that they have as, as they wade in the night. Just as believers must occupy their, in their body all the days of their life, their time in this world. 
The idea here then, friend, is this, that as the wise slept with their provisions, so true Christians live in this world with their preparation for Christ. In other words, they take it with them. Even as other things in the world will require their time, their energy, their thoughts, this preparation never leaves them. Even there in the world, they stand ready for Christ. And so, friend, this text teaches us that true Christians carry their preparation into daily life. And as we close, I want us to see that briefly in three ways. I want us to see that, first of all, how this text communicates to us something about the zeal of the believer. We hinted at it last time. But friend, do you remember that the foolish, they took their lamps, but no oil. No oil. And, and what are we to make of that? Well, friend, they thought, their, they thought their measure of preparation was sufficient. There's nothing in the text that would lead us to think, nothing, that, nothing in Christ's telling of this parable that would lead his hearers to think that, that these foolish virgins intended to go dark, intended to be excluded from the feast. No, 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 not at all. But they were then manifestly contented with the small preparations they made. They were contented, in other words, with a measure of religion, a measure of piety. But you see, friend, how that's so different than the wise. The wise in our text are not contented with that. They, they in other words, take up as much as they can with them. You see, they represent, of course, what we found before those who are pressing for more and greater godliness. They're not content to rest in meager preparations. And so, friend, you see here a picture of true grace. It's, it, it's an overcoming thing. It's a pressing thing. It's, it is, as again Christ describes in Matthew's Gospel, a violent thing even. It's a holy violence that the true Christian has. And just to see this illustrated in the Apostle Paul, he says this, he says, I keep my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Friend, that's a staggering thing for the Apostle Paul to say, but what does he mean by that? Well, first of all, if you look at those words in the original, that he brings his body under subjection, the idea there is actually one of incredible violence. It is as though he beats himself into submission to Christ. Now, friend, we're not supposed to understand anything physical there. There is to be no self-flagellation. But what you and I are supposed to see here is that kind of zeal. He is not contented, as it were, with a measurable, respectable kind of piety that, that grows nowhere. Friend, I want you to notice this is, not, this is not for us simply to admire the apostle in. This is not for our, our reading and our understanding just so that we can admire a man. The Apostle is saying this is what it looks like to be a genuine believer. The genuine Christian is pressing forward, not contented with meager preparations for eternity. Just enough to get by, as it were. No, friend, he's always pressing forward. You see, friend, you see the reason why this is in 1 John. John writes this, he says, Every man that hath this hope in him, that is this hope of eternal life. He says, he purifieth himself. But then I want you to notice the measure. Even as he, that is Christ, is pure. 
Know what John is saying there. He's saying those who have this hope really, those who are truly possessed of saving faith, he says they purify themselves and here is their aim. Though they will never attain it in their lives, their lives, their aim is perfection. Though, friend, in this life, the Christian will never be perfect. They allow themselves, they allow themselves in no rest in this regard. They strive, friend, after holiness. We'll come back to that in a moment. But the second thing I want you to notice here is that there is humility very obviously displayed in these wise virgins. We're told that they slumbered and they slept while the bridegroom tarried. Now, friend, again, as we look at the foolish virgins, we see there are people who are, who are relatively contented with, with small preparations. And again, if we understand that they, they're not supposed to be construed as, as, as wanting to be excluded from the feast, as wanting to be without sufficient preparation or oil, then what do we make of this? Well, friend, here you have a picture of the very self-same thing you find in the second parable. That's the parable you find in Matthew 24. It's the idea that the foolish virgins, they were willing to wait for Christ for a time. They were willing, in other words, to meet Christ on their time as it were, on their terms, according to their dealings with him. What you find, and this is really the principal element, I believe, as we're reading this text, what you find here is that the wise virgins, on the other hand, they were willing for Christ to come in his own time, to deal with them in his own way. And friend, that demonstrates a real humility. And that also is part of the faith of the believer. You see, friend, it's the believer who is, as God's grace works within him, who's really laid low before Christ. Who is pleased for Christ to deal with them in his terms, according to his own means and ways. Friend, so many would make a Christ today of their own liking. So many would say, well, I'll be content to follow Christ, provided he does this, that, and the third thing. Provided he doesn't require such and such from me. Friend, this text illustrates that that's not preparation at all. But the third and the final thing that we can draw from this text, from the wise, is, friend, here you see a picture of love. A picture of love. You see it, first of all, with regard to the bride. You remember that if you were a, if you were a hearer, of this originally in the first century, you would know that, that these ten virgins had a simple task. They were to be there primarily as the attendants to the bride, and, and the lamps were to be lit for her benefit as well as for her bridegroom. And so what you see in this text is you see five virgins who are diligent. In other words, who would not dishonor the bride whom they're to be serving by allowing their lamps to go out prematurely. And friend, as we remember that the bride of Christ should be understood here to be the church as a whole, you and I see here in this text that the true Christian will be possessed of real love to the bride of Christ. What does that look like? 
can I read to you just a text from the Apostle Paul that I think, I think really challenges many with regard to a notion of Christian love? Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Friend, I think we could spend a lot of time there, and we simply don't have it. But that's an illustration of what genuine love to the Church of Christ looks like. Willing to, be, to spend and to be spent for her sake. And then I want you to notice this. There's, there's, an, there's a, striking, a striking follow-up that the Apostle enjoins there. He says, though I, though I love you, and for it I am less loved. And how many people leave churches these days? How many people have resigned the church as a whole off to the bit, to the abyss, to the dustbin, simply because they've been personally offended or, or simply because this, that, or the third person hasn't responded the way they've wanted to? Not so the Apostle Paul. And friend, as we come to 1 John, John makes this all the more pointed for all of us. He says, we know that we have passed from death unto life. Why? Because we love the brethren. He goes on to say, for he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? You know, friend, I, I talk with a number of people who have issues with assurance of faith. Seldom does this point come up. An earnest desire over the bride of Christ. Seldom do folks make conscience of this. But friend, in our parable and throughout the scriptures, we're told this is part of what genuine faith is. In other words, what true preparation for Christ looks like. It necessarily involves love to the church of Christ, even if it means we are less loved. Finally, friend, we can't get away from this either. And surely in the first century, this too would have been drawn from the text. Just as the virgins here did not want to dishonor the bride by allowing their lamps to go dark, this was also, this was also for the sake of the bridegroom. So, friend, in this text, you and I should also see here that the true Christian, friend, he'll take his vessel and his oil. He'll press further and further into godliness He'll cast himself daily upon Jesus Christ for for the purging and the pardoning graces that are to be found only in him. And he'll do so out of love to the Savior. He would not dishonor Christ because, friend, as Peter reminds us, those who truly believe, to them Christ is precious. Friend, I think this is perhaps one of the most challenging elements that belong to self-examination. What think ye of Christ? What think ye of Christ this evening? I'm not asking you what experiences have you had. I'm not asking you this evening. This text doesn't ask you this evening, what have you done? The text ultimately is asking, what do you think of him? What have you done with him? And so, friend, as we close this text, poses to us some basic questions of examination. Friend, if if you found out 
as you left, as you left those doors, that the doctors had discovered that you were terminally ill and that you had days to live, what would you think of what, what you and I have just sat under this evening? What would your hope be? I mean, genuinely, friend, if, if, after all, if after all of your time planning for the future, you were told that you had few days left, what would you hope? And what would you hope? That's a question that really lies behind our text. I suppose I could ask it in a way that's a bit less dramatic. When you go out into the world, what do you hope for? That's, I think, perhaps the more searching question. You see, friend, that will tell you everything you really need to know. What are your longings for? Friend, if they're not for greater communion with Christ, if they're not ultimately that you would grow in godliness for his name's sake, then friend, surely your slumbering and your sleeping is that of the foolish virgin. You're in the world, but you're not prepared. But there is something in this text, friend, for those who are duly prepared. I want you to notice, and I suppose this could be easily overlooked, but Christ calls those, those who exercise a true and a saving faith in him, he calls them wise. Friend, think of that just for a moment. The world looks at the Christian today and, and he says, the world, as far as they're concerned, couldn't find a greater fool. But Christ, who is wisdom incarnate, says those who really, with a genuine faith that are, that's lodged in me, these ones are genuinely wise. That's how Christ esteems the believer. The world calls him a fool. But in Christ's eyes, these ones are truly wise. And so, friend, the call of this text, of course, is to prepare. And as we've seen, friend, that is to lodge one's soul by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To cast yourself and all of your hope only upon him. To renounce the world and all of its vanity. To press forward for more and more conformity to his likeness for his name's sake. And that's the exercise of genuine faith and that is the only kind of preparation that is true. Friend, if you don't know, if you don't know by experience these things, there's nothing that I can do, there's nothing that anybody else can do that can make this happen. It must be a sovereign work of God's grace. But friend, if, if you would like to know more, don't hesitate to speak to me as well. And certainly, friend, more than that, go to the God who alone can give such grace. Amen. Oh,